what sets the John Lewis partnership apart is the fact that it's an employee-owned business where the happiness of the partners as co-ownership is of paramount importance and the two brands are famous for exceptional service and exceptional quality both in the, the, the produce and provenance, our really strong ethics uh, as retailers in, in both brands and that's, that's kind of what the John Lewis partnership is famous for. Investment in technology is a key enabler and driver to enable to, to become completely omnichannel where you can attract customers and retain customers uh, whether they're shopping online or in our shops. I guess it's important for me is to build those relationships with teams. The people that work for me first and foremost are my friends and that's the way I've always found it and it works best for me. This is Siona TV. My name is Hendrik Dekkers. I'm here today with Alex Bowles, who is the Head of Infrastructure and Service Management at the John Lewis Partnership. A very warm welcome, Alex. Hi, Hendrik. Thank you very much for having me. Alex, you have a degree in political theory and philosophy from the University of Exeter. Your career has all been about IT and retail. And you started at Marks & Spencer, where in the end you were the service delivery lead. Then you moved to Waitrose where you took the head of IT, the position of head of IT of operations. And in 2019, you became the head of infrastructure and service management at the John Lewis Partnership. So Alex, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Who are you really? And uh, what's your background and how did you arrive in this position? Yeah, certainly. So it's, uh, there, were, there were many jobs in between uh, <laughs> the ones that you mentioned. So I, I, as you said, I finished my, uh, my degree uh, in, uh, in politics and, and, uh, and political philosophy as well from Exeter. That was really exciting stuff, uh, really enjoyed it and I was going to continue. I was, I was helping research a book uh, with my favourite professor at the university at the time uh -huh. and my, my intention was always to carry on with my education but my, my father saw how much debt I'd racked up during my time at university and, and made it clear in no uncertain terms that it was time to get a job. So. Um, it was actually my auntie. So my auntie found a, uh, a card in the local uh, employment agency and said, oh, Marks and Spencers are looking for, for IT help desk analysts. And my dad got very excited and said, look, IT is the place to be. It's the, it's, yeah, it's the new thing. So I think you should go and do that. So I went for an interview uh, at Marks and Spencers. Uh, I was halfway through the interview where the, my manager said, uh, and I, I presume you speak French? Uh, and thinking on my, my feet, I said, we. Oui. Uh, and I, unfortunately, I hadn't read the small print on the job advert, is that it was for a bilingual help desk analyst. Um, so, so on my first day, I had to make, I had to make friends with, the French, with the, the French girl sitting next to me. And we came to an arrangement where I would buy her lunch every day. Uh, and if I ever got calls through uh, from one of the French stores, I would pass them over to her and she would help me. Uh, so that worked out quite well, and by the time by the time Marks and Spencers found out that I didn't speak a word of French, uh, I'd already established myself, so that was okay. Um, and then and then yeah, I just progressed my career through through IT and in retail, uh, doing lots of various jobs, mostly in service management mm -hmm. for Marks and Spencers, uh, through major incident problem management, change, uh, and leading those teams, uh, and into service delivery uh, and business relationship management. I had a short stint as. Uh, as doing retail implementation and project management in our shops. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, went through to uh, marksandspencer.com, 
so we were just replatforming our website uh, and so went over to do um, the transition of that into operations and really caught the bug then for, for digital uh, and online retail. Uh, which led to an opportunity moving over to uh, Waitrose okay. uh, for waitrose.com. And then, like you said, then in 2000 and, uh, 2019, an opportunity to, to have a PAM partnership role across the whole of John Lewis um, presented itself where I became the, the head of infrastructure and service management, which I've been doing for uh, three years now. Okay. So tell us a little bit more about the John Lewis partnership. I mean, it's, uh, it's um, very famous, of course, in the, U in, in the UK, but for the rest of our mere mortals. Tell us what is Waitrose, what is John Lewis, what is the John Lewis partnership? So, so, you, so you're absolutely right. So in the UK, um, they're, they're, two, they're two iconic brands uh, of John Lewis, uh, which is a number of department stores mm -hmm. uh, and a very successful website, um, and, and also Waitrose, which is a, a supermarket chain. Um, so what, what sets the, the, the John Lewis partnership apart is the fact that it's an employee-owned business mm -hmm. um, where the happiness of the partners as co-ownership um, is of paramount importance. Um, and the two brands are, are famous for um, you know, exceptional service and exceptional quality, uh, both in the, the, the produce uh, and provenance, um, our really strong ethics uh, as retailers in, in both brands. And that's, that's kind of what okay. the Journalist Partnership is famous for. So that's quite exceptional. Employee owned a big, big company. Give us some numbers. How many department stores, John Lewis, how many supermarkets, Waitrose, how many people work there in total? So, so John Lewis department stores, we have uh, 40 large department stores and a, like I said, a really successful website. Mm -hmm. Across Waitrose, we have uh, 350 supermarkets oh. uh, operating predominantly in the south of England, mm -hmm. um, but dotted all around, all around the UK. Um, and we have approximately 60,000, 70,000 partners, um, dependent on the time of year, of course, when we ramp up for, for, for Christmas and what have you. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, large, large number of partners operating across both brands as well. Okay. Now, a lot of has, has been going on in, uh, in retail over the last couple of years, of course, and with the e-commerce with the e and everything. At the same time, we live in very, very special times um, where there's, there's, I mean, the consumer... Confidence index has plummeted, there's inflation, there's energy crisis, there's a war going on and so on. So many, many things going on at, at the same time. What is in, in, in retail and at the John Lewis partnership, what are really the drivers of change today and, and how is business responding to that? I mean, you're absolutely right, Hendrik. And I think during the pandemic, I think what we saw was, was absolutely those, those changes within customer behavior. Um, essentially uh, grow exponentially. Mm -hmm. um, so we already saw, you know, in, in, in some circumstances, a big shift to online sales through uh, John Lewis, through our department stores, mm -hmm. um, and also a growth in online from Waitrose. Um, during the pandemic, what we saw, of course, is, you know, during lockdown, we actually had to, to, to close all of our department stores, so it became a 100% online business overnight. Yep. I think the fact that we'd invested quite heavily in that as a proposition um, and, a, and an experience really paid dividends during that time. Mm -hmm. And John Lewis um, did well during, the, during those difficult times. For Waitrose, it was a little bit different just in terms of um, 
the need to feed the nation and our ability to respond to things like being able to prioritise our elderly and vulnerable customers uh, became of paramount importance during that time. And again, the underlying investment that we had made in the technology made that achievable. Mm -hmm. I think more recently through the cost of living crisis, um, it's absolutely changed customer behaviour where they're looking and turning more to value uh, and to make sure they've got good value. The strength of our brands has always been uh, of quality um, and a very loyal customer base mm -hmm. who appreciate uh, our ethics, our sustainability um, and, our, and our credentials in, in those areas. And of course underpinning, underpinning all of those is, is technology um, and the investment in technology is a key enabler and driver um, to enable to, to become completely omnichannel where you can attract customers and retain customers uh, whether they're shopping online or in our shops. So online shopping, uh, Alex, has, has uh, dramatically changed the, uh, the business, I can imagine. And so over the last couple of years, you invested heavily in the uh, Retros.com program and, and putting that in place. So take us back a little bit. What was the situation? What was the challenge? What was the program all about? What did you need to change? And what are the results uh, uh, that, uh, that you have today? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, what we, what we had was, was absolutely an ambition to grow that area of the business, mm -hmm. um, which because we'd had uh, a long-standing agreement uh, with a, you know, a completely online retailer who was essentially selling our products um, on our behalf. Uh -huh. We wanted to build that capability ourselves and already had, um, had that capability to some degree, but it was quite small at the time. Mm -hmm. um, joining Waitrose uh, online, what we found was, 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 was quite a, a problematic situation uh, with you know, a monolithic platform um, so we were sitting on an old WCS platform mm -hmm. um, with a monthly release cycle. So we were, we were turning around changes very, very slowly and not responding uh, to our customers' needs on a quite a slow, unresponsive website. Mm -hmm. When we were doing releases, they tended to be very problematic. They resulted in, in numerous uh, P1 incidents. So we went very much into firefighting mode and then you were, you were then repeating that on a month by month basis. Yep. So from a customer pers um, experience perspective, uh, it was quite a, a slow website and we were very uh, slow in terms of releasing new features mm -hmm. and functionalities, um, which made it particularly problematic. So what we decided to do was to build around that website and, and migrate um, so using a micros, uh, microservice architecture, mm -hmm. um, uh, platform and replatformed onto public cloud. Um, so, we, so we did that onto AWS. Mm -hmm. And then also changed the whole operating model of Waitrose.com as well. So integrating, so using uh, agile methodologies and working a lot closer with the business in a product, uh, in a product uh, setup instead of uh, project focused. Mm -hmm. um, and then also um, establishing DevSecOps uh, between our de delivery uh, and operations teams. So we're all working within single products. Um, we established a, a platform engineering function, um, which were also embedded into each of those product teams as we were developing new features. Mm -hmm. So as we focusing on the front end first and the customer experience, what we, what we started to build was a fully automated um, continuous uh, delivery pipeline, um, which then enabled us to be able to release value and increment uh, quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Um, so we moved to a, to a situation where we are now where we can release multiple hundreds of changes every day through that automated pipeline so that we can release value very quickly mm -hmm. um, and improve the customer proposition on the front end but also through the back end um, to ensure that um, when it comes to um, everything from the, the shops, the, the, the goods being picked for in the shops to them being delivered um, to the doorstep that that experience is as seamless as possible. Okay, and who, who was involved in, in, this, um, in this program? So, so, I mean, essentially, it was it was it was myself coming in um, fresh from from a similar project that we had done on uh, MNS.com, mm -hmm. uh, but working closely um, with the rest of uh, my team within within technology uh, and also stakeholders within the the wider business, mm -hmm. um, and and had since so we had good sponsorship. Uh, from our from our director of online trading. So, so how was this yeah. uh, how was this program funded, uh, Alex? What we did was it was essentially self funded. Mm -hmm. So coming into it um, from afresh, what we what we had the opportunity to do is we had a number of disparate um, uh, support teams mm -hmm. uh, working across with various third parties. So the opportunity to consolidate those through a period of first stabilisation uh, prior to transformation. What that did was give us greater capability in terms of 24 by 7 monitoring, um, some enhancements in business process, so doing um, changes to the website overnight and what have you from offshore locations. Mm -hmm. So improving that service, but also lowering costs by consolidating to single suppliers. So that in itself uh, released benefits of, of two and a half to three million pounds a year. Well. Uh, which could, we could then reinvest mm -hmm. into building that capability um, predominantly through with partners um, in those key technical areas that we could then use to start um, building uh, and expanding on that new public cloud platform mm -hmm. uh, that we were that we were building okay uh, so you came from an, an, an old slow a uh, system where you could only update every month and where the updates create a lot of problems where you say now you can update on, on, on a daily, on, a, on almost like on a real-time basis? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, really empowering uh, those teams and those product teams mm -hmm. to be able to release um, and, like I said, to, um, to release value. Um, and early on, and to improve the customer proposition, um, as you said, on a on a daily basis. So it's a huge shift change in terms of what the perception is of IT and, and us being that enabler, uh, uh, enabler for, for for the a better proposition. Okay. And could you give us an idea of what the what the change has been for the customers? I mean, let's say in orders per week or something like that, revenue wise. What the the impact was of this change? Yeah, so so when we started out, um, so we were, I think, on a good week, we we were, uh, we had about fifty thousand customers mm -hmm. uh, a week on the, on the shopping on the website, um, and through the uh, through the app as well, um, and the experience was always relatively poor in terms of the feedback that we were getting. Um, that uh, has changed, and we were going to sixty thousand. Um, once we had started to, once we'd started that transition, and that ramped up very quickly. So, like I said, so being able to then accommodate two hundred thousand at quite short notice mm -hmm. through um, much better responsive uh, and scalable um, website on the front end, but also through um, creating 
uh, more picking opportunities uh, in our shops um, and in what we had was dark stores, which is um, essentially fulfillment centres, mm -hmm. dedicated fulfillment centres. Um, that really stood us in good stead for, for when the pandemic hit and we saw that peak. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, 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 it's now stabilised, but we're, we're, we're at over sort of 150,000 uh, orders a week now from the site. So you tripled the, the, the number of orders per week. So that means that you had, what is it, millions of extra revenue per week? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, number of millions per week. And in terms of, you know, you know, the, the, the revenues across um, across supermarkets is always very high. Mm -hmm. um, the profit margin is, is usually a lot lower with it being a supermarket. So volume is is critically important uh, yeah. with those. So, Alex, when you when you started in 2019 in this position, what was the, the major changes you needed to make? Uh, on, on, on the level of infrastructure and service management. Can, can you talk us through that work a little bit and, and where you are today? Yeah, so what became clear early on is we were, we were in the midst of a, a transformation within technology and change, mm -hmm. moving to a more uh, product-oriented structure. Within infrastructure, what we needed to do is build those underlying platforms, whether they be uh, through on-premise within our data center or as we moved more to uh, public cloud, mm -hmm. uh, for that to be um, a shared um, platform across both brands because historically they'd, they'd, they'd uh, moved in different directions. Mm -hmm. And then from a service management perspective, really uh, enhancing the fact that service management having an end-to-end -end view of those service outcomes mm -hmm. to the rest of the business around how we could operate those. Mm -hmm. um, so what we needed to do was come up with a new sourcing strategy. Okay. With the number of applications and services and technologies that we were supporting, what was becoming clear was that we couldn't, uh, is that we needed to be able to partner um, with someone mm -hmm. uh, who could who could provide that that burst capability, so that as we brought on new services uh, and new technologies that we would have uh, resources ready to take up, um, take up that, that support and delivery mm -hmm. uh, at pace, um, whilst also being able to retain our overall strategic direction um, and technical assurance of the work and to be working within the business. So one of the first things that I did was, was, um, was sponsor um, a review of our sourcing strategy. Mm -hmm. um, so like I said, we had predominantly partners, but some also different third parties across different technologies. So consolidating those into a single strategic partner, um, that was a first for the partnership in terms of being um, a real first generation outsource um, for our commodity type services within infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, and what that did was um, the timing was interesting because just as we were uh, about to sign the contract and go into transition, uh, that was when lockdown uh, first kicked off with the with the pandemic. So, so running a full transition uh, across uh, that many technologies um, completely uh, remotely, whilst also supporting the business, um, was was a, was a significant challenge, mm -hmm. um, but one that we overcame over that first year and we're now uh, a couple of years into that um, and what we found is we've really been able to leverage um, those new skills um, that have come with the third party and 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 more burst capability whilst having um, focusing partner roles on those areas that differentiate um, particularly in the technical assurance mm -hmm. our overall strategy 
um, and also in things like our, our partnership and our cloud, our public cloud platforms. Okay, so paint me a, a bit of a picture, Alex. Where are you today uh, infrastructure-wise? You still have your own data centers. You, um, how much do you already have in the cloud? What's the, what's the strategy? You want to go cloud only or cloud first? Where's, where, where are you in that, uh, in that journey? So yeah, so it's it's absolutely still still on that journey. So um, with uh, similar to a lot of retailers, uh, a lot of companies of our size and complexity, um, is we've still got uh, data centres. So we've still got two data centres, um, which host a lot of um, a lot of our legacy. Um, we've invested quite heavily within our public cloud capability, mm -hmm. and particularly in those online areas that we discussed previously. Um, across Waitrose.com and, and JohnLewis.com. Uh, so they're both um, solely in public cloud mm -hmm. now. What we're doing is also utilizing uh, the public cloud for um, <clears throat> for things like our, our partnership data platform. So it's more of an evolution mm -hmm. uh, than a revolution at the moment because essentially we're, we, you know, we're still getting um, value from the assets that we have within our data center. Yeah. But is, is your strategy, is your belief that you can become a 100% cloud company and, and, and what is holding you maybe back to, uh, to, to, to going there uh, next year? Yeah, so, so I think that's certainly the ambition. Mm -hmm. um, I think what we'll find is, is that the organizations that have, that have really accelerated um, have done so at a cost um, because I think there are those areas where where certainly from a, a greater flexibility, uh, agility um, and security absolutely pays off in terms of investment in the cloud, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's through SaaS or PaaS or IaaS. Um, but where you have that, that, that level of legacy, um, it's, obvious, it's, it's very often cost effective uh, to leave it as is uh, and move it as you transform your application landscape rather than trying to do it purely from an infrastructure mm -hmm. um, standpoint. So, so that's what we're doing at the moment. Okay, now on infrastructure, I mean, you have, what is it, these 400 different locations that you need to service at, at the same time. How about networking infrastructure? Has that been upgraded as well? Or what's, what's the needs there? Yeah, so as part of the, um, as, so as part of the, uh, the program that I discussed, um, what, we, what we leveraged within that third party is, is is some transformation capability as well. Mm -hmm. So from our, our overall store estate, we've moved to um, software-defined uh, networking across all of our department stores, and that's being rolled out across our supermarkets as well. Mm -hmm. We also took on um, some of the proprietary tooling, so uh, greater automation um, and uh, monitoring capabilities of our uh, central both centrally uh, and out in our shops as well, so that we can we can monitor performance um, of um, of our end user uh, devices as well uh, in shops and across our head offices. Okay, let's talk a little bit in more in general uh, about the IT and the digital organization. I mean, you have Waitrose, you have John Lewis. Are these still different teams? Is this one IT team? What's the IT operating model? How big is the uh, the IT team? Tell us a little bit what, the, what the, the IT operating model is today. So the IT team itself, is so it's over a thousand strong. Mm -hmm. um, the two brands historically um, have, have, have worked very independently mm -hmm. uh, with, two, with two separate boards. 
uh, what happened is we, we did, you know, it's uh, akin to uh, getting divorced and then getting remarried and discovering that you're still in love and remarrying. Um, and that's what sort of happened to the, uh, to the two brands uh, a few years ago, mm -hmm. especially when they started to have the conversations around um, having more data-driven conversations about what, who our customer is mm -hmm. and the synergies. So a John Lewis customer is very likely to be a Waitrose customer okay. as well. And so therefore, how do you start leveraging the two brands mm -hmm. um, together? So that was also happening across the technology because technology was always going to be a great enabler um, in order for, to, to achieve those outcomes of the one view of the customer. Mm -hmm. um, so, so we have spent years of starting to consolidate wherever possible um, across our IT landscape. Um, the interesting thing is being able for, to enable those brands to still operate um, because running a, a supermarket is very, very different to running a department store. And so therefore being able to um, share where possible, but absolutely respect the brands and the fact that they do need to move at different paces okay. dependent on the time of year or what they're doing. So yep. that's been the, the, the challenge that we've been facing into. Okay, but infrastructure-wise, this is one team or you still have two teams for, for each brand? No, so, so we, we have brought all of that together because mm -hmm. um, particularly from an infrastructure perspective, whilst we might have different needs of the different brands at times, mm -hmm. uh, by and large, um, running it as a single underlying platform has absolutely made complete sense, yep. both from an efficiency perspective, um, but also being able to serve the, the two brands. Okay. Tell us a little bit more about your role as Head of Infrastructure and Service Management. Where do you, where do you spend most of your time? What is it that, if, if I would look at your agenda, who, who do you uh, spend most time with? So the, the roles are quite um, <clears throat> quite separate in terms of the time I spend within infrastructure and service management. Mm -hmm. So from an infrastructure perspective, uh, there's been a lot of focus lately um, on our new partnership cloud platform uh, mm -hmm. and building that capability, onboarding our resources, um, and then starting to look at new tenants um, that come onto that platform as projects get spun up um, and, and building that capability. Uh, additionally, um, the work that uh, I discussed around the um, maturing our, our networks in our shops mm -hmm. uh, and upgrading those um, with software-defined networking has been has been another key transformation project. Um, from a service management perspective, I guess it's largely been around how we mature our processes. So well, I think we're quite strong uh, on some of those core processes around incident problem change management. Um, but when we look at some of the other things around event management um, and around software assets uh, and overall asset management, they're areas of particular focus at the moment. And I guess how we transform um, service management um, for uh, how, how it stays, remains relevant and adds value, um, particularly as you move to more DevSecOps um, type operating model across, across the organization. Mm -hmm. So that transformation is also um, one of the key things that I've, I've been working on. Can you talk a bit more about the impact that it has on, on service management when this change to go more uh, DevOps or DevSecOps and uh, the impact it has on, uh, on service level management, service management? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think when you, moved, when you, when you see increased maturity um, in some of those areas, so the good example for us is probably within johnlewis.com and how they operate. So they're very well self-managed at the moment. So with good automated pipelines. So if you take any of those processes, so if we say, if we take change management, um, 
you know, there's no need for cabs um, as such as, as, as we used to have uh, all those those go, no-go type scenarios because through uh-huh. a fully automated pipeline, as long as our uh, requirements are met in terms of there being um, change records, um, that largely they can be self-sufficient. Similarly, with things like incident management um, and the use of some of the new technologies, very often through event good event management, is they can be predicted uh, mm-hmm. and they can be resolved before they even become an issue. Yeah. So, so I think with a lot of areas, but there's still a need for things like good service introduction, where the role becomes one more of coaching, um, as opposed to um, as opposed to those being uh, key functions that basically say yes or no. Um, yep. And what they do is they embed themselves within those product teams, and like I said, act more in terms of uh, coaching, best practice, and being able to ensure that we we follow the same. We deliver the same outcome, um, but how it's delivered can vary very much in terms of what areas of the business they're working with. Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about your management style. I mean, there's what's more than a thousand people in IT, so infrastructure and, and service management must be, I mean, a, a considerate uh, uh, size teams as well. So, so how have you organized your, um, your teams uh, how do you manage them? How do you make your team successful? So I think one of the key things is making sure that you've got the right team uh, around you. So mm-hmm. um, always make a make a point of of hiring specialists into those roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the act that I play, in terms of my management style, I think it's uh, overall it's a it's a role as a as a coach. So I like to work one to one wherever possible with with my direct reports ensuring mm-hmm. that I'm providing the right amount of encouragement motivation um, but providing enough autonomy in order for them to be able to really express themselves in their roles mm-hmm. um, with service management and, and infrastructure and with those when you get into the complexities of those areas what becomes apparent quite early on when you're doing these roles is that you're always you're never going to know enough to be able to do each of those roles. So you have to rely on these people yeah. um, to deliver. Um, and so, absolutely empowering them and giving them uh, the freedom within that framework to to really express themselves, I think, is is key. Yeah, and where where do you find the right people? Because attracting and also retaining people nowadays is not not an easy thing. So, what's your your secret there of um, making sure you have the right people and, and, and grow them? Well, the partnership is fantastic uh, and, it's, it, and it's great for, for attracting uh, people because of the, the nature of, of what it is as an employee, as, a, as an employee-owned uh, entity mm-hmm. because you mean something bigger than just the, the shareholders or maximising profit. It's around generating enough profit and that to be shared within, um, within the partnership. So attracting um, partners where they believe in something, uh, in, in being involved in an organisation uh, that, is, that, is, that is special uh, has always been um, one of the key drivers for people attracting people to the partnership. And their tenure tends to be quite long as well. Um, okay. People do tend to start with the partnership and, and, and stay. I mean, we stopped doing it now, but back in the day, when you after you'd done five years, you'd get a you'd get a handwritten letter from the chairman inviting you to spend the rest of your career with the partnership. So it really was, you know, it was seen as being a you know a, a job for life. Um, what's happened uh, more recently is absolutely being able to offer really rewarding jobs in technology. 
um, and mm -hmm. I think being able to um, to being able to attract the right people from a from a software or, or a development perspective, um, particularly engineering, um, and being able to 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 offer a really exciting job within new technologies and for them to be able to express themselves yeah. um, is is one of the key things I think. So that's yeah, that's quite exceptional. I mean, having a, a partnership model to run a, a huge business as mm -hmm. as your business. What does that mean for the people? Does that also mean if the if the business has a super year and makes a lot of profit, then that profit is also distributed as as bonuses to the to to, to your teams and and the people across the company? Absolutely, absolutely. So 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 once a year. <clears throat> I mean, the last couple of years will probably be exceptions because of because times have been particularly hard. But um, but yeah, absolutely. So so it's been around any profit that's generated is reinvested back into the business um, or shared between partners in in the form of a bonus. Quite interesting. So let's talk a bit a little bit about leadership because managing a team and organising them, attracting them, making them successful is one thing. But also, people want to want to work for leaders. So, so how do you think the people in your teams now and 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 in the past maybe as well? If I would go out and talk to them, what do you think they would say about you when you're not around? I would certainly like to think that that, that they would they would see me as someone who was caring uh, mm -hmm. and who cared about them as individuals, um, as someone who provided uh, guidance. Um, and a level of expertise in the areas that um, that they look after, um, that's enabled them to, um, to to flourish in in the areas that they look after, mm -hmm. and to also provide them opportunities. Okay. That's what I'd like to think they would say. <laughs> and what do you think they will they will say? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm fairly confident that's what they would say. Okay, good. So uh, it's important for me. I mean, I guess yeah. I guess it's important for me is to have. Um, is to build those relationships with teams. I think it, there, there's something about leadership that can't be that can't be learnt from a, from from a book or watching or watching mm -hmm. YouTube videos. I think there is something about a personal connection between um, between between a leader and the people who who, who work for them, um, yeah. and the people that work for me, first and foremost, are my friends, um, and and. And, that, and, and that's the way I've always found it, um, and it works best for me. I can imagine, because you have shared with us your uh, MBTI profile, your personality type, and uh, you, uh, your type is ESFJ, also known as the console. So an ESFJ is a person with uh, extroverted, observant, feeling and judging personality traits. And these are typically attractive, oh, no, these are typically attentive, uh, people focused and they enjoy taking part in the social community and their achievements are guided by decisive values <clears throat> and they willingly offer guidance to others. Uh, Alex, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you typical strengths of people uh, with, your, uh, with your profile and you tell me if you recognize yourself in them. So consoles, ESFJs typically have very strong practical skills. They have a strong sense of duty. They're very loyal, uh, they're sensitive and warm, and they're very good at connecting with others. Does that fit the bill for you? I think, I think most of them. So certainly the loyalty, um, certainly the, you know, I enjoy the company of others and working mm -hmm. uh, as a team. I think absolutely all of those resonate. Um, 
I think the uh, the practical skills, I'm not so sure. I don't think my wife would agree in, ter in terms of my ability to turn to, to, to DIY around the house. I mean, that's mm -hmm. definitely a weakness of mine. But everything else absolutely resonates, Hendrik, yeah. Okay, let's look at the flip side of, of this profile. And people with your personality type, their, let's call it weaknesses or uh, areas of development, uh, typically is, is that sometimes they're worried about the social status. They can be inflexible. They can be reluctant to innovate or improvise. They're vulnerable for criticism uh, and they're sometimes too needy or too selfless. So tell us, uh, Alex, what are your, well, where are your development areas? Where did you develop on a professional level, on a personal level um, to, to become the, uh, the leader that you are today? I think, I mean, I think the inflexibility is something that could have been leveled at me at, uh, at some stage, certainly. And it's one thing that I've been, that I've certainly been working on. It's, mm -hmm. it's very difficult sometimes, especially when you've, you've got experience and you can see, um, and you've got experience of a particular outcome that you're looking to deliver. Um, and so um, I have certainly got a lot of the drive um, to, to, to make that happen come what may. And sometimes that's been uh, to the detriment of sort of bringing bringing people along on the journey. Um, but um, but some of the other things. I mean, I could say also I'm a, I'm a little bit thin-skinned when it comes to uh, criticism. Like I said, I consider my work. I spend more time with my workmates than I do um, with with my family and with mm -hmm. my you know with with my friends outside of work. So I want to make those and build those um, those relationships and and those friendships, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe that does make me a little more, bit more sensitive um, when it comes to, uh, to feedback. Okay. You talked about your, uh, your family and you shared with us that you have three children, uh, six, eight and 15. So what are, the, what are the core values that you're passing on to them? With which values do you want them to grow up with? Which are also the core values that, that, that you yourself live by? I guess, I mean, this is quite boring, but the, the, the one that I always come back to is, is just instilling a good work ethic. Um, mm -hmm. I think there is, there is something fundamental about, um, about enjoying work and enjoying working hard mm -hmm. um, and, and, and working to achieve something. So I think, first and foremost, if I, if I instill anything in my children and something that I believe in, it's absolutely that strong work ethic. I guess the second one would probably be integrity. Mm -hmm. um, and I tell my children, to do the right thing, um, but the important thing is to do the right thing even when no one's watching you. <laughs> um, so, so I think I, I think that that integrity is is the other one that is that I really try and instill in my children. Okay. Now, what is it that I mean? It, it, what what is it that drives you? What is it that makes you happy? You say that uh, work is important for you. You have you spend a lot of time. You make a lot of good friends there at work as well. So, so what is it that needs to happen at the end of the week that you say, well, this was really a good week? I think it's setting yourself goals um, and achieving something. Um, so particularly as I sort of progressed in my career, um, the ability to set targets and, and, and goals for yourself and for your mm -hmm. team um, is critically important because you can really start to um, consolidate and help drive each other um, with those. I think the other one is 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 happiness, um, and that's why it's a good it's such good synergy for the partnership, which is, you know, about happy partners, 
um, uh, and happy customers in a happier world. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something absolutely thinking in my, about my, you know, my personal life, Christmas parties, all those sort of things, Sunday lunch. Very often they're at, they're at my house, and and some me and my wife do a lot of the hard work, and um, don't get so much time to to participate because because we're doing a lot of the preparation and the cooking and the, and the hosting, mm-hmm. but actually seeing people enjoying themselves and being happy. Um, makes it all worthwhile, and I think that's similar to um, to, to a work environment. Is 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 actually seeing people happy in their jobs and enjoying what they're doing. Yeah, let's let's talk a bit more about your professional work and your professional life. I mean, you you, you created great success in these large organizations, but I'm sure we all have our uh, our failures our uh, uh, programs and projects that don't go the way that we wanna, want them to go. So would you care to share with us maybe what was your most brilliant failure and what, what you learned from it? So, so, so one that, the one that does spring to mind was, um, as I said, when I was at Marks and Spencers, I did a lot of um, service delivery roles. Mm-hmm. Um, and I needed, to, I needed to, uh, to, to spread my rings into other areas of, of technology. Um, and so I, so I begged my boss that I, would, that I wanted to become a project manager. So I did a retail implementation um, of some particular new devices that were going to be rolled out to all of our shops. Mm-hmm. Um, and I took on the role as, as, as project manager, but without any training and without you know, speaking to any colleagues because I was young and I could do anything. You know, yeah. it, was, it was that sort of mentality. Um, and, and engaging with the rest of the, the, the teams, um, you know, essentially... Uh, times times were slipped. We ended up over budget, um, and things. <laughs> we 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 eventually managed to get the implementation in uh, after a few, after a few attempts, but with me returning to my default position of running it like a major incident. So <laughs> pulling in teams at the last minute to get um, and pulling in various favours from from people within our retail business. Thankfully, it was quite a small project, but it taught me a hell of a lesson um, mm-hmm. about, you know, about uh, making sure that I was well equipped um, to be able to, to, to do a new job or a new skill to make sure that I was learning, uh, listening to others um, and taking, taking criticism on board. It was, it, was, it was an interesting journey, that one. Alex, do you have a, a personal mantra saying that, you, that, that, guides, that guides you, that helps you? I think, I think I think linked to that to that story actually. I think I think um, being the um, trying to be the learn it all rather than the know it all. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I think I've naturally got quite an inquisitive mind, um, and making sure that I'm asking questions uh, and that I'm inquisitive about new things, new technologies, um, and what people are doing. Uh, I think that's really important rather than. Um, being the person who has been there, done that, bigger, better, um, and being more sort of directive, I think. Yeah. Did you have in your life important mentors or important coaches or people that you look up to that that you learned from? And could you maybe mention one or two? Yeah. I mean, I've been I've been I've been blessed with having of having worked with lots of really interesting people. Mm-hmm. Um, on in Waitrose.com, um, I met uh, a brilliant guy. 
uh, called James Hoare, who's now the, uh, the director of engineering at Kingfisher Group. Mm-hmm. Um, he was fantastic in terms of his passion for technology. Um, I've never come across anyone like it. Um, and he could talk to someone on the shop floor or the CEO of the business uh, and just talk so enthusiastically about the potential of technology and what it could do as an enabler for the business. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, it was really infectious. So he really taught me in terms of, of how I can bring people along on that, on that journey, on that sort of digital transformation journey. Um, similarly, uh, Cliff Cohen was another one. So he's currently the CIO at ASOS, which is a big online uh, retailer. He was my boss when I was working on MNS.com. Uh, he taught me about about ensuring that I still had attention to detail. Mm-hmm. He was incredibly detailed um, and running a huge, massive program of work. Um, but he would still find the time to ring me and say, you know, I'm I'm trying to buy this particular jumper uh, in this size, but it's only got three sizes. I'm sure there should be five. And you think, oh, you know, what's he talking about? And sure enough, he'd be right, and it would unravel a whole, you know, some, some underlying issue. Uh, within our within our inventory on the website, and he was fantastic and had great intuition, um, and like I said, real real attention to detail. So so they're two two that really spring to mind. So Alex, of course, meeting your wife, having children, were some of the best things that have happened in your life. But outside of family life, what would you say is some of the best thing that has ever happened to you in your life? I think so. I think I'm incredibly grateful, but eternally grateful for you know how lucky I've been. Uh, whether that's to be um, you know to have been born in the country that I've been born in, um, to have had the opportunities that have been offered to me um, in terms of being able to progress um, educationally, culturally, mm-hmm. uh, and through work has absolutely been you know I always I always think how lucky I have been. Um, and that's probably been one of the, you know, the best things, the best yep. thing in terms of what's happened to me in my life. And would you maybe care to share with us what is one of the worst things that have, really has happened to you and, and how you overcome that and what you learn from it? I should preface this with, with, with saying absolutely how lucky I've been. So in the grand mm-hmm. scheme of things, um, my, you know, in terms of health and my family and what have you, I've been, I've been very lucky. I did lose my uncle. Um, who was who was who was a mentor to me, um, he, and we were very close. Coming from a sort of working class background, he was the one, the first one in the family who really made it. Um, he sort of uh, ended up with his own business mm-hmm. uh, and was successful. Uh, and and unfortunately, when he was nearing retirement age, uh, he developed motor neurone disease, um, which is a horrible, horrible disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, which which saw him deteriorate quite quickly, and he died within within a year. Um, so he never really got to to retire. And I think that was, in terms of, I mean, you don't really ever overcome losing a loved one, mm-hmm. but it does teach you some lessons. In so much as, you know, he had spent his whole life working uh, ridiculously hard to provide for his family, and he he just got to the to the finish line and had some great plans just in terms of what he was going to do during his retirement and holidays and, and time he was going to spend with his family and seeing his grandchildren. Um, and he never got to do any of those things. So, so I think there was a, 
there were some, some lessons there for me just in terms of being able to strike the right balance and, and make the most of the time that you've got while you're here. Yeah. Carpe diem, as they say. Absolutely. Alex, what, what, are, what are your passions outside of work? I mean, you're clearly very passionate about what you do and the teams that you work with and, and the friends and colleagues and so on. But outside of work, what is that that really gets you going? So, so I'm absolutely reliving uh, my, my youth and, and what I didn't achieve in the sporting world through my children. Okay. So um, I dedicate most of my time to coaching uh, my son's football team. Um, mm -hmm. so, my, so my son plays for an under-9s football team, uh, which I coach. I also um, take him along and he plays rugby and tennis and swimming. Um, so between my three children, uh, we do lots of sports. Super. Now, Alex, I would like to uh, end this uh, conversation with our traditional final question. And that is, these interviews are being watched by young, ambitious professionals that also want to build a career in a, in, in a uh, large organization, be successful as, an, as, as, as a top manager in there. So what is the, uh, what is the advice that you would give these uh, ambitious IT professionals if they would like to uh, follow in your footsteps? I think going back to the, to the, sort of the, the principles that I live by, I think don't underestimate the power of, of hard work mm -hmm. um, and putting in the effort um, because it really does pay off. Um, I would say always have an inquisitive mind, always be prepared to learn something new. If there's an opportunity comes up to change, whether that's a change of job or a change of direction, whatever it is, um, take it. Because the worst thing that will happen is that you find out that it's not for you and that you can course correct. But whenever a change presents itself, mm -hmm. grab it with both hands. I think they would be the key things for me and what stood me in good stead. Okay, Alex, on that note, thank you so much for your time and for sharing all your, uh, all your stories. It was really a pleasure. Looking forward to meeting you face-to-face -face, uh, very soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, Hendrik. Nice to meet you.